warm welcome as he delivers a word to us here, okay? Well, I'd just like to say, starting out, that Holly, Emma, and I have really been enjoying our time here at CCC. Uh, we felt nothing but love and, and comfort and encouragement and support from everybody here. So I just want to say thank you um, for all of that, and, and we're blessed. We're honored to be here, and I'm especially honored to be able to share the Word of God with you guys this morning, this summer morning, which is nice, right? And so speaking of summer, you know, summer brings some realities, and if you're a parent, you know what one of those is, and that means that your kid is home a lot more than they're not if they go to public school. And so that can be kind of a bittersweet reality for you, I'm sure of. But something that's a sweet reality for your student is the fact that they don't have to do any more testing because summer, you know, is the embark of the no more tests, no more school. And so I heard a story about four college students who were up really late one night, they were hanging out, and they woke up the next morning and realized that they had totally missed a major test that they had to take. And so basically what they had to do is they had to figure out, you know, a good lie. And so they tried to figure out, you know, what can we do and say to postpone this test? And so what they came up with, what they did, is they basically covered themselves in grease and mud, and they walked into the dean's office an hour after the test was supposed to be taken, and they said, hey, listen, we were at a wedding last night, and on the way back, our car's tire blew out. So for the whole night, we had to push our car back, and that's why we're so late. And so the dean looked at him, and he was like, okay, well, here's, here's what I'll do. I'll let you take the test, but you have to take it in three days. And so they're like, oh, you know, this is great. Okay, so they, they, you know, bury their head, and they're studying for the next three days, and then they go to take the test. They walk into the dean's office, and they go in there, and the dean says, okay, you guys ready to take the test? Two caveats. Number one, got to take it in separate rooms. Okay? Number two, there's no teachers here, so I need your, your cell phones. I got to take your phones. And so they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And so they went into the room to take the test. There's the paper where the test is. They flip it over, and then their stomach drops. Because on the test, there were two questions. First question, worth one point, state your name. Okay. Second question, worth 99 points, which tire blew out? <laughs> I think it's safe to say that they did not pass that test. I'm sure you guys know that as a Christian, as a believer, we go through different seasons in life when our faith is tested. We go through seasons where our faith is tested. The book of James actually describes it as going through various trials at various times. And so a trial or a test is something that brings adversity to us. It's something that's hard. It's something that's difficult. And it's to win our, our, the quality and the strength of our faith is being tested. That's what, a, that's what a trial is. And they come in all shapes and sizes. It can be anything from stubbing your toe to making sure that pleasant words come out of that, to losing your job, to having marital problems, to getting an illness, to having a wayward child, to losing a child. There's various trials various times where our faith is tested. And as a Christian, I feel like we find ourselves, we're either coming out of a trial, we're either in a trial, or we're about to be in a trial. You know, we're always going through various trials. And so I believe that there's no 
greater example that teaches us how to respond when we go through trials than the example given in Genesis chapter 22 of Abraham. Of Abraham. If you have your Bible, you guys can go ahead and turn there. Now, while you're turning there, I want to just mention that this passage to the Jews is called the Akita, which means the binding of Isaac. Some have called this the greatest test of faith in the entire Bible. And some rabbis today, they even view this as the single greatest act of devotion to God in the entire scripture. And so I hope for this morning is that as we look at this example that Abraham gives when his faith is being tested, that we would be encouraged and equipped corporately and personally to walk through trials faithfully, to walk through tests of faith faithfully. So that's the title, When Your Faith is Tested. And so if you would stand as we honor the word of God, and I'm going to ask one of our ministry leaders, Dylan Pelletier, to come and read our passage today. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, I am here. He said, take now your, your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Amen. You may be seated, and let's pray this morning. Father, we come before you, and we're just grateful um, to be here, to be in your presence, to experience the fellowship of your spirit through your people. We're so blessed, God. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for the freedom to worship you, to exalt your name, Jesus. Thank you for the freedom that we have to hear from your word this morning. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would move in the power of your Holy Spirit. Do it only you can do through your word. Lord, if there's someone here that's, that's lost, that doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray they would come to know you as their Savior this morning, Lord, through the conviction of your spirit. And if you guys would, just with your head bowed and your eyes closed, just ask God to speak to you personally this morning. And then if you would, just ask the same thing for your neighbor. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Genesis chapter 22, there's four different scenes in this story 
that are going to serve to unpack how we can respond when our faith is tested. And the first scene that we can look at is the test. If you look in verse 1, it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And so there's two important observations about this test that I want us to see. The first is its timing, the timing of the test. Notice it says, after these things. And so what things is, what what is he talking about? Well, if you remember back to when God first spoke to Abraham, you'll recall that God told him to leave the land that he was living in, and then God promised that he would make him into a great nation and multiply his descendants. And so Abraham did what God had said. He left, and he went to the land of Canaan. But there's a problem, because Abraham was 75. He's well into his 401k at that point, and he had no kids. So I don't know about you, but you can't have descendants that become a great nation if you have no kids, and if your wife is approaching 90. So if you just stating the obvious there. But if you look at chapter 21, you'll see that God fulfills his promise, and Sarah has Isaac. And so Abraham ended up waiting 25 years before he saw God fulfill his promise. And that brings us to where we're at in chapter 22. Now, it's important to understand that Isaac is around the age of 16 to 19. And we know that because he's strong enough to carry the wood up the altar to the mountain. And also the word that's used for Isaac here, lad, is also used for Joseph when Joseph was at the age of 17. And so here's why that's important. Because Abraham could be a grandpa soon. Isaac's at the age where he could marry, where he could have kids. And so Abraham's probably excited, probably a happy season of his life to see God's promise accelerate through Isaac marrying and having kids. And then that's right where he gets tested. I think the timing of the test teaches us that God allows various trials to come at various times, which is a simple truth. God allows various trials to come at various times. And sometimes we think that they're coming at the worst times. Really, God, right when I bought a bigger house, I lose my job. Right whenever I get ahead on my bills, a medical emergency happens. Right when I start trying to eat healthy, work caters in donuts. Like, what in the world is going on? (laughs) Trial among trial. Sometimes trials come when we least expect it, when things are going well. And really, that's just how God likes to do things sometimes. We have to remember that we live on God's timetable. He doesn't live on ours. And so we will experience various trials at various times. And that's the timing of the test. Let's look at the content of the test now. The content of the test. What is the test? Well, it's Abraham sacrificing Isaac as an offering to God. And so it was common back then to offer God sacrifices, of course, on on an altar. But nowhere do you see that God would ever require someone to sacrifice another person on the altar for an offering. In fact, later when the law is established, God strictly prohibits child sacrifice. So what exactly is going on here? Well, spoiler alert, God never intended on Isaac dying. And we know that for two reasons. Number one, because... Isaac never died, (laughs) stating the obvious. But number two, there's a really unique potential reason, and it had to do with the diplomatic etiquette of that day. There's one professor of ancient history at Roman University. He suggests that this biblical episode was a symbolic ritual enacted between deity and patriarch whose intent was to exalt Abraham as the Arad Kittai par excellence, that means the faithful servant, 
And then to demonstrate that God was most trustworthy of suzerains or overlords, masters. And so what he's saying is that there's this diplomatic dance going on, potentially, to where if you were a servant, you could pledge just a radical step of obedience to your master. And that was often enough. The master wouldn't let him go through with it, but that was often enough to where the master was like, all right, you are my faithful servant. You're the faithful servant. And then that would also exalt the master as being the supremely trustworthy master. Now, we don't know if that cultural custom is in Abraham's mind or not. The text doesn't actually tell us. But it does beg the question, what exactly was going through Abraham's mind when God called him to do that? What questions did he have? Maybe he was wondering, man, can I really trust the character of God? Is he faithful to keep his promises? Is this what I get for obeying him all of these years? Or maybe God's trying to get back at me for some past mistake or some past sin. You know, if if we're all honest, when trials come, when our faith is tested, those are some of the same things that we start wrestling with. Those are some of the same questions that we have for God. But I want us to think about something real quick. What is God trying to ask us during trials? I think God is trying to ask Abraham something here. Look at verse 2. God said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, verse 2 is a key verse. Underline that in your Bible. Take special note of it. And pay attention to the construction of that verse, to the sentence. This sentence has three clauses before the verb, and then the name Isaac is left to the end of the sentence for emphasis. And so it's like there's three bell tolls being rung whenever it refers to Isaac. Take now your son, dong, your only son, dong, Isaac, whom you love, dong. It's, it's pretty intense. And I think here's the question that God is asking Abraham. Abraham, do you love me more than you love Isaac? Because it's Isaac, his only son, whom he what? Whom he loves. Abraham, do you love me more than Isaac? This is actually the first time that the word love appears in the Bible. And it's used to describe Abraham's love for Isaac, a father's love for their son. And so what we're seeing happen to Abraham is that this test of faith is really a question from God. Abraham, do you love me more than you love Isaac? And that's the same reality for us. The content of the test reveals that tests of faith ask us who or what we love the most. What do we love the most? And God wants to know that we love him more than anything else. Jesus put it this way in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying is that the love that you have for me should look like hate in comparison to all your other relationships. If you love your family, you love your wife, you love X, Y, Z, Those loves should look like hate in comparison to your love for Christ. And so do we love Christ more than our children, our spouses, our families, our career, our comfort? Do we love those things more than Jesus? The timing of the test reveals that God allows various trials at various times. The content of the test reveals a question. What do we love the most? And so how are we, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond in these various trials? Let's look, let's look at how Abraham responds. 
okay? The second scene we see is the hike. In verse 3, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So this test of Abraham's faith was not something that happened to him. It's something that God had called him to. And this thing that God had called him to required that he go on this three-day father-son hike to a mountain. Now, personally, if I'm the son, that's a hike. I'm going to go ahead and pass on. But hindsight's 20-20, so neither here nor there. But this trek that Abraham has to take to Mount Moriah reveals three ways that he responded to this trial. Number one, he had immediate obedience. Abraham had immediate obedience. God called him. Abraham answered. Got up, went, no delay. <laughs> he didn't argue. He didn't complain. He didn't haggle God. He didn't forget about it. It's not like many of us guys, you know, our wives are like, hey, I need you to take out the trash or do X, Y, and Z, and, and then we forget about it, you know. Or maybe something really nonspecific like, Hey, you got to hang the blinds in the baby's room because your wife is blinded by the sun when she goes in there, and they really need to be up before August because that's when the baby comes. <sighs> I don't know why that got in there, but nonspecific. You know, I think it's important for us to realize that delayed obedience is immediate disobedience to God. If we don't know the future, we don't know the reason for the trial, we should still obey in the midst of the trial. And Abraham had immediate obedience. The second thing that he had is he had an appropriate view of obedience. In verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Do you notice what he called this act of obedience? He said, We will worship and return to you. Abraham viewed this act of obedience as worship to God. That's pretty awesome. It reminds me of Romans 12, where God says that our logical service of worship is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Obedience to God is the ultimate form of worship. And what, what are we telling God when we worship him, when we are obeying him? Well, I think we're responding to the question that he's asking us in trial. We're telling God that we love him. Have you guys heard of the five love languages? Everybody's pretty much heard of it? Okay. Well, somebody said that obedience is God's love language. Obedience is how you tell God that you love him. And so Abraham viewed obedience as love, as worship to God. We will go and worship and return to you. The third thing that we see is Abraham had confidence in God's character. Verse 7 says, Isaac spoke to Abraham his his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son, and he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So clearly, Isaac's wheels are beginning to turn. He's like, hey, dad, we, we, we got all the stuff for the burnt offering, you know, we're pretty much here. Where is the offering again? Like, what's going on here? Kind of awkward. But Abraham's response in verse 8 says this, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. So Abraham is displaying great faith here. He had confidence in God's character. He knew that God was going to provide. In other words, he had confidence in the person of God. Therefore, it led him to having confidence 
in the provision that God could give him. The book of Hebrews actually tells us this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So Abraham actually believed that even if Isaac died, God had the ability to raise him from the dead. And apparently he believed that God may, have, may, may just decide to provide a substitute altogether. So Abraham believed that God would provide what he needed when he needed it. He trusted the character of God before he saw God do anything, before he saw God provide. How did he get that kind of faith? Well, I don't think it happened overnight. I think it's because he knew how God provided for him in the past. He remembered how God provided for him when even in the midst of his sin, he lied to Pharaoh and later again to Abimelech about Sarah. He remembered how God gave him victory over the kings. He remembered how God spared Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he remembered how God finally fulfilled his promise of Sarah giving birth to a son. So when trials come, we can trust the character of God. We can trust that God will provide everything that we need because he is faithful. And so if you're worried where monthly bills are going to come from, just remember that God provided last month, maybe even in the nick of time with the right amount that you needed that randomly showed up. If you're in between jobs, remember that God provided the job you just had. He's going to provide a job for you in the future. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Because of who he is, he will provide what we need in his timing. And that's the tricky part. It's his timing. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not above our thoughts, are not our thoughts. So during trials, don't delay your obedience to God. Have the appropriate view of obedience. It's worship. It's love for God. And to be confident in the character and the provision of God. And you will see God provide, just like Abraham saw God provide. Let's look at the third act of the story, the provision. Then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And so imagine being there. You're Abraham. You have the knife. You're about to kill Isaac. And then God steps in with his provision. This is what I like to call God's Gandalf moment. If you remember Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, he says a, wi a wizard is never early nor is he late. He arrives precisely when he means to. And God is arriving precisely when he means to, precisely when Abraham needs him to. And he provides a substitute. That's why Abraham calls God Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Jireh, you're the God who provides because God provided for him. Now you may have picked up on this. But this scene is actually a major preview of coming attractions. This scene is actually a foreshadow of the future. 
the provision points to Jesus. In fact, a lot of aspects of this story point to Jesus. Let's look at them. God calls Abraham to sacrifice who? His only begotten son, his unique son. Not his only son because Hagar had Ishmael, but it was his unique son of blessing. Well, what do we read in John three sixteen? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only unique son. And later in this story, God provides a ram as a substitute in the place of a father's son. And then later we see that God provides his son as the ultimate lamb to die in the place of the father's enemies. And where was the ram? The ram was caught in the thicket, it says. The thicket was a dense bush of thorns. And what do we see later? A crown of thorns put on the head of Jesus. In this story, Isaac, the son, is carrying the wood up the mountain, and then he's laid on the wood to be the sacrifice. Later we see that it's Jesus who's told to carry the wood of the cross up the mountain, and then he's laid on the cross and nailed to it. In this story, we see that it's the angel of the Lord who steps in. Who is that? Scholars believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ. And that would mean that Jesus provides for Abraham the sacrifice, but later he will be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And so why can we trust God to provide, especially in trial? It's because he's already given the ultimate provision for us in Jesus. That's why. 2,000 years ago, God became a man. He lived the perfect, sinless life that we could never live. And because he had no sin of his own to die for, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. You can't die for the person sitting on your left or your right because they have their own sin to die for. Jesus has no sin, the perfect, sinless son of God. He's able to pay for the, the penalty of sin that we all deserve to pay for. And then he says, to tell us it's finished. We just sang about that. The debt is paid, you're free to go. And he rose again on the third day and he offers eternal life as a free gift by his grace. No strings attached. And Abraham actually models that for us as well. If you remember back to Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what do we have to do? We believe God about the provision he's made in Christ and it's credited to us as righteousness. God already provided for our greatest spiritual need. So of course, of course we can trust him in trials. Of course we can trust him to provide for our physical needs. Romans 8.32 says this, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? When Abraham saw the provision, it confirmed the confidence he already had in God's character. God is faithful. And that brings us to the final scene, the blessing. The blessing. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So awaiting Abraham and awaiting all of us at the other end of a trial is blessing from God. 
In fact, the way we should view trials is that they're road signs to blessing from God, blessing ahead. Just look at how he blessed Abraham. First, God repeats the promises that he already made to him. But then, if you notice that word, greatly. He said, I'll greatly bless you. I'll greatly multiply you. It's the first time that sand on the seashore is used. It's the first time that he says your, your seed will possess the gate of their enemies. And so he already had blessings from God, but God enhances those blessings. He boosts the blessings. And so when it comes to us, when it comes to our situation, God knows how to sovereignly provide what we need. He knows how to bless us. Yes, sometimes it's physical things. Of course, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Sometimes it's spiritual things like reward that we won't see until we step into the kingdom and we're, we are rewarded in, by Jesus. But here's the, the ultimate blessing that I want us to really pay attention on, the, the ultimate blessing that Abraham experiences at the other end of this trial, and it's this. Abraham experienced greater nearness to God. Greater nearness to God. This trial elevated Abraham's intimacy with God. And let me prove that to you guys in a few ways. When God first called him to sacrifice Isaac, if you guys remember that important phrase, he said, your son, your only son, whom you love. You remember the question, who do you love the most? Well, after the trial, God says, you have not withheld your son, your only son. He doesn't say whom you love. And that's because Abraham passed the love test and he answered the question correctly. Yes, God, I love you more than I love Isaac. I love you more than I love my son. Another piece of evidence that he drew more close to God is in verse 19. It actually says, it doesn't, it doesn't mention in this last scene, it doesn't mention Isaac anymore. It just says Abraham returned with his young men. <laughs> Did he ditch Isaac on the mountain? No, he didn't ditch him. Isaac's mentioned throughout the story, but not here. It's elevating Abraham. He's faithful. He's the faithful servant. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, I love how someone summarized this story of Abraham in Genesis 22, and they said this, Abraham so loved God that he gave his only begotten son. That's why God says, I know that now you fear me. I know that you love me because you are willing to give up your son. And one more piece of evidence that his nearness to God was increased. At the beginning of the test, this is my favorite part, at the beginning of the test, Abraham says, God will provide. Remember when Isaac said, where's the offering? He said, God will provide. At the end of the test, Abraham calls this place, the Lord will provide. Why is that significant? Because at the beginning of the test, he uses the general name for God, Elohim. At the end of the test, he uses the personal name for God, Yahweh. God became more personal, more intimate to Abraham. And so trials are invitations to intimacy with God. Trials are God's personal invitation to grow in our closeness and nearness to God. So when our faith is tested, we need to view obedience to God 
as love and worship for God, which leads to intimacy with God. And I'll close with this. You, you remember Job. There's a cosmic thing going on in the background. He never finds out why anything happened to him. Wouldn't have been able to understand it. Gets, you know, his family dies, all the nine yards. If you remember what happened, God appeared to Job. And if you remember what God said, God just said, hey, Job, where were you whenever I created the universe and stretched out the heavens and did all this? God just describes more of himself to Job. And if you remember Job's words, he says, at the very end, he says, my eyes, I'm sorry, he says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. It was an invitation to Job to greater intimacy with God. He was faithful. If we're faithful, the same will be true. The same blessing will be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your provision in Jesus. How exciting it is to know that you've settled and provided for our greatest need for salvation. And as we say, we have the hope of eternity, God, with you. But Lord, in this life, we're gonna go through trials. Or as Peter says, that our faith, which is more valuable than gold, is gonna be refined in our life but it will result in glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, pray that you would use us, that you'd strengthen us, equip us, encourage us while we walk through trials and tribulation, persecution, times where our faith is tested. Help us to walk through them faithfully like Abraham did. But with our ultimate example being you, Jesus, because for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, you despised the shame. And now you're seated at the right hand of God. Help us to fix our eyes on you, to learn from these great examples. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, they've just, just heard the good news, they just heard the gospel that their sin is paid for, they're free to go. Jesus has settled their debt of sin in their place, on their behalf. It's a free gift free to them, but it costed you everything. It costed you your life, your blood. But you offer them forgiveness and salvation as a free gift if they'll receive it by faith. Your word says to him, to those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believed in his name. And so Lord, I pray that they would believe in your name this morning. They'd recognize that they're a sinner, but that you are the savior and believe that you paid for their sin and rose from the dead. You are the son of God. And we thank you for the promise of eternal life, of forgiveness, of that ultimate blessing, God, of knowing you, Jesus. Eternal life is knowing you. We thank you so much. We love you, we praise you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, right now, we're going to take the Lord's table and communion. And so if you haven't gathered the elements yet, um, they're at 
every corner of the room. So if you would, just go ahead and quietly grab the elements this morning. And then make your way